Good morning, everybody. So glad you're here with us. Uh, before we get into our time in God's Word, just indulge me for a moment. Allow me to share a father moment, if I could. Uh, last week, probably like a lot of your kids, uh, my son was playing a basketball game, and his team lost a heartbreaker in the last minute. But he, uh, he, he played great. He scored a ton of points. And so after the game, because uh, I'm a good parent and I've been to our church's parenting seminar, uh, I knew that I praised not just his performance but his effort. And so I said to him, son, uh, you know, you, you played great, but I'm, I'm so proud of how hard you worked, how hard you hustled. You know, you went up and down that court, you ran the whole time, you didn't quit, man, you hustled just so much, and uh, of course he said, thanks dad, appreciate that, and uh, the next morning, which was last Sunday morning uh, here in Promised Land, the children were doing an activity, and the teachers were asking them, uh, what, uh, what do you want to be known as when you grow up? What do you want to be uh, when you grow up? What would you want other people to, to know you for? And so they gave him a balloon to write their answer down, and uh, he thought about it for a minute, and he wrote on there, he said, uh, I want to be a hustler. <laughs> a hustler. So there you have it. The pastor's kid wants to grow up to be a hustler. Um, now, of course, he, he brought it home, and Carrie and I smiled, and uh, we laughed. We said, buddy, you know, that word has a couple of different meanings. Uh, <laughs> Based upon, you know, how, who's hearing it and where they're coming from and, uh, you know, how you use it. He smiled and said, well, I mean it this way. And we said, okay, buddy, we know that. And so in the same light, same light, I don't know what some of you have thought when we've said that we're going to have an awareness forum this week to talk about the topic of diversity. So let me just tell you what we mean, all right? We feel we have an amazing church full of beautiful diversity that, of course, you're a part of, that you labor to make happen, and we're so excited and, and thrilled about that, and so we want to understand that a bit better and learn how we can export that to other churches and our culture as they've asked for that and looked uh, to us in some ways, and so we're going to take it slow and learn to develop a muscle that we can use to address perhaps other difficult topics as, a, as we move forward here in lots of different areas, uh, and so we're going to begin with this one. We had a pilot group this week, and we learned a ton, of, a ton from that, and so therefore, this Friday's meeting is just going to be composed of two elements. First is going to be us laying the theological foundations, framing the discussion for what the gospel underpinnings of biblical diversity looks like. Number one. And number two, a safe place where you can have what I hope is some fun dialogue around where you're from, a cultural background. Uh, We hope to laugh together, learn, understand one another, and most importantly, see Jesus in our diversity. Amen? So if that sounds like something you'd like to attend, great. It's at 7 o'clock. You can register online and let us know you're coming. All right? Sound good? Here we go. The message. All right. Uh, The scripture reading this morning is going to be from Exodus 16 and Numbers 21. The title of this is called Into the Desert. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Zim, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Nothing like believing the best. Okay. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. 
So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. And the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It's God's word for us this morning. Uh, now, in some ways, it's not fair to you what I'm doing in this series. And you say, Morgan, well, I kind of thought the same thing. You know, these scripture readings have been kind of long lately. Uh, no, not that. What I mean is this. I mean, Exodus is really just one film, one book in a five-film series of what scholars call the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament. In a very real way, these five films, these five books, are meant to be read consecutively and, and processed together as a whole. And they all culminate in the fifth book, the fifth film, called the Book of Deuteronomy, which is really where uh, the person of Moses gives a series of speeches to the Israelites before they go into their promised land. And And in the middle of one of Moses' speeches, he actually gives them something astonishing that gives us a key to how to interpret and understand what the book of Exodus is really all about. And this is what he says. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. All right, so this, though, is astonishing. You say, well, what's so astonishing about that? Well, look at what God says for them to remember. What did he want them to remember? I mean, out of all the things God could have said, remember, about the previous 40 years, he says, remember the desert. Remember the desert. God says, remember this, that I led you there. I led you there. In other words, it's not just like God was wandering out in the desert one day. He's, you know, sort of, you know, going around the planet. He ends up in the desert. He bumps into his own people and say, what, what are you doing here? Here in the desert, me too. You know, fancy, where do you want to go? You know, fancy meeting you here. No, no, no. He says, I've led you in the desert. And what was the desert? Well, the desert was the place where the people of Israel would spend the next 40 years wandering around in. Not just because they had a man who was leading them who wouldn't stop to ask for directions, as the old joke goes. But because, two of you grew up in church, okay. Because God was doing something in them. And what do I mean? I mean this. That throughout the Bible, God always does His most amazing work in His children's lives 
in the desert. God called Abraham out into the desert. He met Hagar in the desert. He met Jacob in the desert. He led Moses in the desert. He met John the Baptist in the desert. And the day he was baptized, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, after the Father's voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, that Father sent his own Son out into the desert. Which means this. If these people, the ones God used the most in history, couldn't make it without the desert, do you really think you can? You really think you can? You, in other words, can't live without the desert, the desert experience, the desert training. Why? Because there's just something that happens there. There's something that God does in the desert that he can't do anywhere else in his people's lives, and that's this. In the desert, you are turned into a person of unstoppable power, of unrelenting courage. In the desert, and the desert alone, oh, you are turned into God's champion for your business, for your family, for your marriage. In the desert, you become what you could never become on your own. How? Through the three lessons we see today in the lives of God's people that God was scoring into their souls there. What are they? Well, we see in the desert that God is moving us, just like them, three ways. One, from principle to practice. Two, from grumbling to gratitude. And finally, from hurt to hope. Let's begin here. Number one is see how God moves us from principle to practice. And let's just ask, where are we here in this story? Well, we saw last week how God dramatically and miraculously saved the children of Israel uh, by parting the Red Sea in chapter 15. We see them briefly pause to celebrate in chapter 15. And then here now, well today, chapter 16 comes. And only around six weeks into their great experiment in freedom, this happens. Verse 2, it says, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And how did they grumble? The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. And ate all we wanted, but you brought us out to starve us to death. Now let's just, first of all, acknowledge the obvious here. This is not reality. (laughs) What they're saying never happened. How did they really feel in Egypt? Remember chapter 1? Oh, it says they groaned under their slavery, under their taskmasters. They were crying out to the Lord for mercy. They mourned while their babies were taken and murdered. But there's no mention of that here, is there? No. They were worked brutally and begged God to deliver them. But six weeks later, what are they saying? Essentially, take us back. (laughs) Life was better there. They said, I don't know if you caught it, they said, before you saved us, God, everything was great. We sat around all day and lived it up. Sat around all day. We ate whatever we wanted. Steaks every day. You know, filet mignon for dinner every night. This is beyond crazy. And that's the point. That's the point. Because what's going on? Oh, well, as many scholars have pointed out here, what they are using, how they are thinking, this is the language of addiction. Of addiction. When they were in slavery, when they were brutalized, they cried out for freedom. But now that they're saved, they want to go back. They want to go back. They're screening out the bad and remembering their torture with fondness. And this isn't just a failure, excuse me, a failure to remember. This is an inability to remember, which leads us, therefore, to a principle this morning. And it's this. You can take someone out of slavery in a moment, but you can only get the slavery out of someone through a process. You can take someone out of slavery in a moment, but you can only get the slavery out of someone 
through a process. Because look, legally, militarily, culturally, they were absolutely what? Free, yeah. They were free. They had no taskmasters, and yet they wanted the taskmasters. Why? Well, because they were free on the outside, but they weren't free on the inside. What do they need? Well, you and I can see it for them, though it's much harder to see it for ourselves, and that's this. They needed the desert. They needed the desert. And this is a picture, by the way, of how God works in our lives. God frees us in a moment, doesn't he? Legally, the moment we give our lives in faith to Jesus, he frees us legally from all of our sins and our spiritual slavery, but it just takes a lifetime to get out the effects of what sin and our slavery of our past has done to our hearts, done to our souls, done to our minds. I wish it weren't this way, but it's just true. It's just true. When I became a Christian at the age of 19, God gloriously and dramatically delivered me uh, in that little chapel that night on the University of Houston campus in some things he forever delivered me from. In a moment, uh, I had been a slave for many years to lust, pornography, perversion, fantasy, that whole world. But in a moment, I was released from all of it. My willpower restored and broke up with my girlfriend at the time. The next woman I even kissed six years later was my wife at the altar after we said, I do. And then, uh, of course, lived in freedom for many years after that, for all these years. And I had a, uh, one young man actually asked me recently, he said, is it even possible to be free from pornography? I said, yes. And then when God saved me, he delivered me from that. He said, what, do you mean like for, like for six months, a few weeks, or like for a year maybe? I said, no, like for coming up on 20 years. See, that's just what happened to me. But other things, other sins, pride, arrogance, insecurity, anger, those who've only come out and are coming out through a process called the desert, called the desert experience, the desert of my marriage sometimes, maybe I'm the only one, the desert of parenting sometimes, maybe I'm the only one. See, uh, for a while, it was the, the desert of being single for what felt like an eternity, the desert of feeling overlooked, misunderstood. Let me ask you, was I just as free from pornography and fantasy as I was from pride? on the night I became a Christian, or was I less free? Well, the answer is yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. I was just as free in principle, but I wasn't as free in practice, was I? See, God had to, through the process of the desert place, of desert training, teach me to take hold of in my heart what I was in reality. What was he doing? Oh, he's moving me, and you too, from principle to practice, from the principle of freedom to the practice of freedom. And of course, we don't like this. We're Americans. We have space-age technology, and we want stuff right now. How do we feel about our pain and our problems and our troubles? We feel about them like a woman who's nine and a half months pregnant feels about her uh, to-be-born baby, right? We just want it out now. (laughs) Just get it out, right? Is what we say. We say, God, I see I've got some problems. It's become clear to me, known to me, uh, that maybe I've got an area of sin, a, a character issue that needs some, you know, some massaging over here. Would you please do two things to me, God? Number one, would you please turn me into an unstoppable person of power and, and grit uh, and joy uh, and poise? And number two, would you please wake me when it's over? <laughs> me when it's over. Zap me with your ray gun or something. When Paul the Apostle says, my sufferings and my trials 
are achieving for me a weight of glory that outweighs everything else. What's he saying? He's saying that the desert, in a sense, is where you become a person of substance, of weight, of gravitas, of meaning. And so let's ask now, because that's the teaching, let's ask, how does, where does this process begin? Hmm? God tells us, he told us, he, he said to the people of Israel, he humbled you. God caused you to hunger, then he fed you with manna. Here's why. To teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And God is saying, look, because I love you, because I'm leading you, I humbled you. I caused you to be hungry which is actually good news for you and me today. If there's an area of hunger in your life, spiritual hunger is hardship. That's actually a place where God's at work in your life. Oh, but there's something more here. You say, what's that? Well, look at what he says. First, he starts off talking about food, and then by the end, he talks about his word. First, he says, I gave you food, I gave you bread, to show you that you don't really need bread. What's that about? He says, I'm feeding you to show you that you don't even need food. Oh, what's he mean? He's saying this. Oh, I'm using a circumstance on the outside, your physical hunger, to teach you about what you need on the inside. And what do they need in Exodus 16? Oh, church, it's the same thing we need today. More than we need food. We need the Word of God in our lives. We need to gather the manna, the bread of God, daily in our lives, over and over. We we need it daily. Why? Oh, for the same reason they needed it. To remind them whose people they were. Because here, if you can grasp it, here was their fundamental, their foundational problem. They couldn't remember whose people they were. Were they pharaohs or were they gods? You couldn't tell from how they talked. They kept talking about their old life, their old food, the way they lived, their old master, right? Therefore, they were going to have to go out and gather the manna over and over. They would have to go get again and again. And again, the bread God was giving them from heaven. Why? They had to have a daily reminder of who loved them, who was providing for them, who had freed them. See, whose food they ate reminded them whose people they were. They said, we used to get food over here. God says, I've got another kind of food for you. See, whose hand they ate from shows whose people they belong to. And church, the same is true of us. Church, same is true of us. Whose hand do you eat from? Is it just your friends? Just your culture, right? Just Netflix binging whenever you can sneak away? Listen, the question they were really asking is this. Who do we belong to? Who do we belong to? Whose people are we? God says, I'm going to provide food for you in the desert. And as you go out to get it, as you humble yourself before me and gather my word daily, you're going to remember who's freed you and who loves you, who's sworn to never leave you and forsake you. Your problem is you can't remember. And the same is true of you and me today. What do we hear every day? We hear whose we're not. We hear the voice of the enemy of Pharaoh, our old life, saying, loser, failure. It's never going to work out. The ship's going to go down. The contract's not going to come through. Your business is going to fail. Your marriage isn't going to make it. Your kids are going to be failures. Oh, we hear that every day. Well, what do we need to go out and gather God's word and in his presence to be reminded of whose we are, of what he said and how his word is what frees us and keeps us free. See, to go from the principle of freedom to the practice of freedom, you're going to have to go get God's word. 
every day, over and over, year after year. You're going to have to cultivate deep places in your heart and in your life for the presence of God. You're just going to have to turn off the TV and open your Bible. Church, the desert can make you great. Oh, the desert can make you great. It can if you'll get God's word, if you'll go after it there. You could come out of your desert season learning the greatest lesson your heart could ever learn, whose child you are and who you belong to, if you'll go after his word. And that's the first lesson. He was taking them through and from and towards. We go from the principle of freedom to the practice of freedom to the daily gathering of God's word into our heart and homes I hope you can say amen. But here's the second. Here's the second lesson. God also, just like with them, wants to move us. Secondly, number two, from grumbling to gratitude. From grumbling to gratitude. Make it a few more amens as we go, but that's okay. Now, as we move through the book of Exodus, you say, Morgan, you weren't really getting any in the first place, so, you know, I'm kidding. Be secure. All right. Uh, I'm just narrating your internal uh, dialogue, monologue here. All right. As we move through the book, you you see something over and over that actually it's impossible to miss, which is really, the second lesson, is an outflow of the first. Because they forgot whose they were, then something happened. What did they do? They began to complain. They began to grumble over and over again, no matter what God did. What did they do? It says this in Numbers 21. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea, but the people grew impatient. They spoke against God, against Moses, and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, no water. We detest the miserable food. What are they doing? What are they doing? Complaining. <laughs> About what? Everything. <laughs> everything uh their complaining has grown can you see as the years have gone by from exodus to numbers it's not just food now not just water it's everything where they are where they live what they're eating what they're not eating what they don't have they're complaining here in numbers 21 has reached a fever pitch they haven't learned their lesson yet of who they are and by the way When you complain, when you grumble, it just shows you don't remember. You're not remembering whose people you are either. So what happens next? Well, Numbers 21, this passage shows us what God had to do to wake them up. It says this, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. And this is tough to read, of course. The modern reader balks at this. We think, man, that's pretty harsh. It sounds just like, you know, the school children don't like what they're serving in the cafeteria, so the headmaster's locking them up in there and taking them out. Is that what this is about? No, no, not by a long shot. I want you to consider the possibility that the poison they were now dealing with in their bodies was still less, still less than the prison and poison in their souls. How could I say that? Well, again, what were they complaining about? Everything, everything, everything God had ever done for them. They'd found a way to complain about the freedom they could never have purchased on their own. They've grown to detest their freedom. Can you imagine it? What does this show us about the human condition and about what we need? Only everything. Let me show you what I mean. John Tierney, who's a former U.S. congressman, actually wrote a humorous newspaper column years ago where he began to unpack his observation about why so many single people, including his brilliant, attractive single friends in New York, were having trouble even getting a date. This is what he said. He said, so why do they have so much trouble? My theory developed in years of field research before being tested in the personal ad survey is that modern single people are singularly picky. They are afflicted with what I call the flaw-o-matic, trademark. (laughs) 
You can think of the flow-o-matic as an inner voice, a little whirring device inside the brain that instantly spots a fatal flaw in any potential mate. This phenomenon, while most prevalent in New York, is found in other places too. And I happen to get my first clear sighting of it on Love Connection, the television show featuring couples just back from their first date. As I recall the scene, even the placid host, Chuck Woolery, seems surprised by one contestant's report. Quote, Well, it started out great. The young man began. She opened the door, and she looked fantastic. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head. Chuck, he said sadly, she had dirty elbows. (laughs) And that was that. The guy went through with the rest of the date, but he knew the relationship was doomed. And watching him, my first instinct was to suggest that there might be some way for the two of them to work it out, maybe some couples therapy and a little soap and water. Uh, But then I realized that it wouldn't matter. He'd just find something else. He sounded too much like the single friends I'd been hearing in New York explain why their latest relationship had gone wrong. Quote, she mispronounced Gerda, as in she said Gotha. If she would just lose seven pounds, well, sure, he's a partner, but it's not a big firm, and he wears those short black socks. These New Yorkers all sounded like victims of their flaw-o-matics, although none of them would admit to having one no one ever does. During my years living alone, I always knew that my own requirements in a woman were perfectly reasonable. All I wanted was a nice novelist-slash-astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. But I could see that others needed help. One evening in a Japanese restaurant with my friend Eugene, we noticed heads turning nearby. A svelte blonde woman was being escorted to her table. Eugene took a quick sidelong glance at her and gave a bored shrug. Ah, you're basic blonde, he said. I was still staring. (laughs) I don't see how you can call her a basic blonde, I said to Eugene. "Uh, You must have one of the new digital (laughs) flawomatics. He glanced at her again. She's not even a real blonde, he said. You can see her roots. Five minutes later, the woman was joined by a man whom we recognized as Alec Baldwin. And suddenly we realized who the woman was. <laughs> well, Eugene said, when the flawomatic starts rejecting Kim Basinger, maybe it's time to get it recalibrated. <laughs> yeah, see, Tierney, he's, he's picking up on something. The Bible has shown us from the beginning that we all have a deep dissatisfaction with everything everything think about it and i'm not even quite sure what this means think a lot theologically but think about it even the garden of eden wasn't enough for humans it wasn't we had paradise but we weren't content with perfection we believe the lie that if things were just a little bit different a little bit better a little bit tastier a little bit more to my liking things would be better right and whose lie did adam and eve believe see numbers 21 harks back to it who's the serpents Right, the serpents. And when the serpent's poison passed into their hearts now, an unquenchable hunger, an insatiable thirst sprung up in the spiritual DNA of every human being who's ever lived. And therefore, what this passage today is showing us is this. Unless this is dealt with, unless this raging thirst and hunger for more is cured, unless our cosmic discontent's dealt with, the poison on the inside is going to kill us. It's going to poison everything. The serpents, therefore, in the book of Numbers were just a mirror designed to show the people what they looked like on the inside. It was just a mirror to show us this today, that we have an infinite capacity for discontent and ingratitude. It's killing us. No matter how much good stuff we have, we always gravitate towards the negative that we focus on it. 
until it's so big, it's all we can see. And this passage shows us what it looks like. What do they have? Oh, freedom. The presence of God in their midst. The temple, the sacrifices, pretty good leadership in Moses. But what can they see of that? Nothing. Nothing. They can't see anything good. What's bad? Everything. Their grumbling has grown to a fever pitch. And by the way, if you've ever worked in the restaurant industry, any of you here ever worked in the restaurant industry? Yeah, you know what I'm about to say next. You know this is true. You can provide impeccable service, great food, a warm greeting, and a smile. And for one couple, everything's fine and great. There are no problems. But the exact same situation over here with another couple and It's a totally different experience. What's going on? Well, as far as they are concerned, you can get nothing right. Get nothing right. You're too slow. The food's not good. There's too much ice in the glass. Not enough ice in the glass. It's too hot, too cold. And you begin to realize, no matter what you do, you could never make those people happy. Right? You can never make them happy. Unless there's some kind of intervention. Unless they were woken up to their true spiritual condition. They're discontent. And grumbling would go on and on and on. Which, by the way, is what C.S. Lewis says hell is. A grumbling that grows to engulf us. See? Why? Because the problem, you know this, isn't in the food. The problem's in the person. In the person. And we just apply this in three ways. This is why so many of us today can struggle in our marriage. And this is why I struggled for years in mine. I kept trying to change Carrie and fix Carrie and make her into something else. Why? The problem wasn't her. It was me. I wasn't content. When I stopped trying to fix her and began to love her for all of her perfectly perfect perfection, my satisfaction and my marriage shot up. Now, I'm just glad anybody will love me and have me at all. Thank you. Secondly, this is why so many people struggle with the way they look. With the way they look. It's why drop dead gorgeous celebrities, many of whom I know some of you would just amputate multiple limbs to look like, they get plastic surgery to the point they're unrecognizable. Why? Because what they looked like wasn't good enough. They weren't content. You think, what was wrong with you in the first place? You were perfect. But see, it doesn't matter. Paradise, perfection, wasn't enough. Isn't enough. And thirdly, this is why so many people can struggle in their own local church. You think, I don't like this. I don't like that. We should change this and change that. And you know what? We should. We should. And I hope we can. I hope we do. But do you know what I also know? I know that if paradise wasn't good enough for human beings, then our church doesn't have a chance. (laughs) to make your heart happy it just doesn't and neither does any church at any moment in history until jesus comes back now listen here's why because no matter where you go you and i we bring the poison of our discontent in with us now that is an excuse poor leadership errors and judgment sin anything else but here's the point of genesis 3 and numbers 21 no matter if it were perfect we'd still be unhappy we still find something to complain about we're all sick we're all sick unless we get the cure It'll grow and consume us and poison everything. So let's ask now, well, what's the cure? Well, if grumbling is the poison, then the practice of gratitude is the cure. And let me just therefore suggest one quick area in which to practice gratitude today, and that's this. It's simply in your relationships. Your relationships. 
Here's why you need to hear this, because you need people more than you think, and so do I. The people, look, thank God the people here in Israel, they had Moses to go pray for them, and it wake them up from what was going on. Look at the story of the, of the Pentateuch. What happens? First they love him, then they hate him. Then they love him, then they hate him, and they hate him, then they love him. What's going on? Getting mad one minute, then grateful for him the next. Why? Well, because God-centered relationships are just always work. They're just always work. They're like a house. Always need of plumbing. Uh, the plumbing is breaking. There's always weeds that got to be pulled. You say, I mean, friction shows. I shouldn't be in the relationship. Not necessarily. Why should that be the case? People say, man, this is what I can't take about the church. I mean, rubs and snubs every time I look around. It shouldn't be that hard. But you're wrong. You're just wrong. And here's why. Because if the church is doing her job, she will be reconciling people who never would on their own be able to stay together, who would never on their own be able to work it out. People who would on their own always walk away from each other. And therefore, in that light, friction, rubs, snubs, confession, forgiveness, repentance, those are signs of the supernatural work of God at work in a people's midst. It wasn't Israel, wasn't it? And therefore, it's true of us. There are all kinds of people in here. And you're bumping across. They're going through their desert. You're going through yours. Kind of friction stuff happens. Listen, that's the sign of God working in our hearts. Not the absence of it. Not the absence of it. Therefore, let's show gratitude in our relationships. Do the people in your life know you're grateful for them? That you appreciate them? See, grumbling poisons stuff. It just does. Gratitude cures it. Let's practice for a minute right now, shall we? I want to tell you, church, how grateful I am for you. Grateful I am for you. It's such an honor to be here in this amazing and beautiful church. I feel like the Lou Gehrig of pastors today. I feel pardon the baseball reference. I, I feel like the luckiest man, man, man. <laughs> On the face of the earth, earth, earth. Five years ago when I got here, 97% of churches in our situation at the time, if you were here, 97% of churches close their doors and don't make it. But we've not just made it, we've thrived. We've got more children now, because you guys keep having them, more children now than we even had people five years ago. You are an unbelievably talented and gifted and gracious church. You have so much grace for me and for my wife and for my children. Uh, You have made me better, and most importantly, I love Jesus more because of you. So thank you. Thank you. Let's be the best kind of people we can be together. And we're that when we express gratitude. So, finally, let's ask, what's the cure for all of our pains, all of our poison? How do we get gratitude in our hearts in the first place? Well, finally, number three, by seeing that God wants to move us from hurt to hope. Hurt to hope. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord (coughs) and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And what happens next, church, is probably the most counterintuitive cure God's ever prescribed. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. And of course they did. But how? How could they do this? I mean, what is this? What kind of a cure is this? Is this like God rubbing it in, right? Is he just forcing them to look at their fault? Forcing them to look at what's killing them? Why would he do this? I mean, think about it. The serpent. I mean, the serpents were unclean things that people could never handle. They didn't just represent their hurt then, but evil for all time because of Genesis 3. But God says here, if you'll look at the unclean, evil thing, you'll be healed. 
what does it mean? Well, none of them, including Moses, probably ever fully understood. But we can today. Because many years later, Jesus of Nazareth was about to launch. It was actually in the middle of his most famous sermon, his most famous speech of all time in John chapter 3 to a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus was about to give John three sixteen, arguably the most famous verse in the Bible, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's John three sixteen. But look at the verse before it, John 3.15, which sparked the most famous verse in the Bible. This is what Jesus said. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What's he doing? He's telling us what the serpent and the pole mean. He's saying, I am about to become the serpent. I'm about to be the thing that kills people in a sense. It's been killing people. He's saying, I'm going to become poison on a pole that you may live. Jesus is about to fulfill not only Numbers 21, but Isaiah 53, where it says, by his stripes, by his wounds, we can be what? Healed. Healed, yes. See, the whole story here, Numbers, Exodus, it's really all about him. How did the people get hope and healing in the midst of their hurt? Oh, it's beautiful. Did they work for it? No, no, no. Did they labor for it? No. What did they do? They didn't labor. They looked. They looked. They looked up at the gospel. Can you see it? They were looking at the gospel, and they found a cure for their hearts. And you can today as well. How's that? Well, think. What was happening to Jesus on the cross? Oh, do you remember? He said, I thirst. What was he doing? Experiencing the ultimate desert. He was facing the ultimate desert, the ultimate heat of hell, the ultimate chill and cold of his father's rejection. He got the serpent's bite and poison. He got thorns and thirst. He cried out, why is this happening? Oh, why did it? So that we could have hope in our hearts today. He went through the ultimate desert. So that in our little deserts, we can know God is leading us through to the other side. So that he he did it so he could become the bread of heaven. Come down for us. That as we gather that into our hearts and homes, we can be a people who are grateful, who have healing in our midst. Amen. Let's sing that this morning one more time. Rejoice in that. Consider that. Apply that as we close and pray here this morning.